I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And it's Dueling Divas Week here on Rivals with two of the finest voices in pop history, Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey. Woohoo! I cannot wait. Their talent is undeniable. And fans have spent decades debating who's superior. So we're going to have lambs to the left, Houston heads to the right. I hope you brought a coat because it's about to get a little chilly with all this shade up in here. So you feel chilly, but I actually feel extremely warm just basking in the glow of all of this star power. <laughs> I mean, are there two bigger singers in the history of pop music than Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey? I mean, between these two ladies, they are responsible for literally dozens of huge hit songs. And yet when you are such a big star, it's really hard to share the stage sometimes, especially when, say, you're as big as Whitney Houston was in the 80s. And another singer by the name of Mariah Carey comes along who becomes an equally big star doing what appears to be a close facsimile of your act. You're right. I mean, sometimes we have shows with the guy who sang Break Stuff and the dude from Creed. Sometimes we do shows where people throw shoes. These women are just in a class of their own. When you consider the astronomical sales figures, the hundreds of awards, the stunning statistics and records broken between them, it just it boggles the mind. And yet, in spite of like all of that stardom, we're talking about two human beings here, and they feel very human emotions. Pettiness, jealousy, <laughs> insecurity, and still more pettiness. So I'm excited to get into it. Without further ado, let's get into this mess. Whitney Houston grew up referring to her family friend, Aretha Franklin, as Auntie Reed. I feel like when you're on a nickname basis with the Queen of Soul, that just, you know, that entitles you to diva behavior for the rest of your life. 
Like, oh, absolutely. Whitney was basically destined to be a singer. Her mother, Sissy Houston, was part of the vocal group The Sweet Inspirations, and her cousins, Dionne Warwick, a legend in her own right. Uh, she began singing first in gospel choirs as a child and then in clubs around Newark as a teenager. And when she was 12, she was a prodigy. She was recruited as like a backing singer for people like Lou Rawls and Shaka Khan. It's, it's amazing how early this started for her. And then um, she was 20 when Clive Davis signed her to Arista Records and spent a few years kind of like, you know, doing the, the star grooming thing and selecting material for her self-titled debut in 1985. And it actually took off really slowly. The label kind of thought it would be like a slow burn, thinking that it wouldn't even break like 150,000 units sold. But it just shot off like a rocket. And I think it earned two number one singles, How Will I Know and Saving All My Love For You. Yeah, so like I'm a little bit older than you. So like I remember when Whitney Houston first hit in the mid-80s. I was around eight years old and I was a young, budding music critic already at that time. I was listening to Casey Kasem's American Top 40 every week. (laughs) And so I knew Whitney Houston songs very well. And she just seemed like she was ubiquitous as soon as that record hit. And it was the type of songs that really like an eight-year-old like me could understand or like an (laughs) 80-year-old could like. You know, it was, they were very middle of the road. You mentioned some of those songs that were hits off of that record. How Will I Know, Saving All My Love For You. Also songs like The Greatest Love Of All, You Give Good Love. I mean, these are songs I remember hearing at like the doctor's office when I was a kid. I mean, they were just <laughs> everywhere. They were very safe. And I think, you know, if you're going to compare her to like the other big superstars of pop music at that time, like, you know, Michael Jackson, Prince, Madonna. I feel like most pop stars had some element of danger to them. You know, they were there was something edgy about their act that would upset parents and therefore, you know, further endear kids to these superstars. There was nothing edgy about Whitney Houston. You know, she was someone that everyone loved. And I think that because of that, she actually did become controversial, I think, by the end of the 80s, because I think especially like among like black music listeners, there was this feeling that Whitney Houston was pandering to a white audience, essentially, that she was the biggest star in R&B, but like there wasn't anything gritty about her music. There wasn't anything like edgy. There was no like real excitement. It just seemed like it was, you know, pitched toward like middle American listeners. And I know like there was a story, I think it was in Time Magazine, where they referred to her as the prom queen of soul, you know, which was not Not a compliment. Yeah, she wasn't very cool basically, but she was enormously successful. You know, again, from 1985 to 1988, she had seven number one songs. That is insane. As much as, you know, there was, I think, a growing group of critics that were, uh, you know, not really feeling what she was doing. I think, again, like in the pop mainstream, what she was doing was working. You know, she was a huge star. Yeah, it's just, I think the, the, the critic, uh, Mark Anthony Neal, wrote that there was sort of an effort to make her the unblack black artist. And some black radio stations refused to play her. I think she was booed at the Soul Train Awards. So it's really interesting now to think from this vantage point. Yeah, they were calling her Whitey Houston, like, yeah. not Whitney oh, Houston, which God. is like pretty brutal. Uh, for her. Yeah, it, I think it just speaks, again, I think, especially at that time, to be like a crossover artist. It just required, I think, concessions that I think for a lot of people were just uncomfortable. You know, that like you were in some way sort of denying who you are in order to appeal, again, to this sort of like massive middle American audience. Which is funny now because I hear those sort of the early pop songs she was doing and it sounds really innovative to me, kind of blending the blend of R&B and pop. Like it seems like you know, not going the straight R&B route was a way to sort of like build on the people that came before her, I feel like. I don't know. I Maybe because I kind of had to rediscover those songs. I didn't really grow up with a lot of those because I was born in 87. So I was kind of right. I think 
the number one song when I was born was, uh, I think it was How Will I Know, I think. But yeah, hearing them now, they they still sound really fresh and, and interesting. But God, seven number ones. I think she was the first person to do, either the first female artist or the first artist, period, who had seven number ones in a row. I mean, yeah, an I, incredible run. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true of like her upbeat songs. You're talking about them sounding fresh today. But like she did also do like a lot of these very soft rock ballads. Again, like The Greatest Love of All. Like mm. saving all my love for you, like which are again, it was like dentist office music, you know. <laughs> and I think what like redeems those recordings is Whitney Houston's voice. She's such an incredible singer that when she does material that is kind of like schmaltzy pap, she can sell it because she has so much soul in her voice. But yeah, the material itself, I think, sometimes could really kind of veer into like snoozeville at that time. So she's in the middle of her incredible run when Mariah Carey bursts into the scene in 1990 with the release of Vision of Love, which she wrote that song as a teenager, which I didn't realize. I mean, just totally virtuosic, not only voice, but just her songwriting capability is amazing, Mariah's. Uh, She's barely in her 20s. Her debut LP sells 15 million worldwide, which is several million more than Houston's still insanely high-selling I'm Your Baby Tonight. And, and this is when Whitney's started to take a dip commercially ever so slightly. I think Clive Davis said he was trying to aim her towards the sort of the traditionally black market that she'd been accused of neglecting. Uh, it's kind of had a little bit of a New Jack Swing sound on that on that album, which I think it was her first LP that didn't make number one. I mean, it made it number three, which is still great. But uh, but no, Mariah it just absolutely explodes. Uh, she was the first artist since the Jackson 5 to have her first four singles top the charts. You got Vision of Love, Love Takes Time, Someday, and I Don't Want to Cry. Hell of a run. Yeah, and again, this was another instance where, I mean, I remember when that record came out, I guess I was in middle school when the first Mariah Carey record dropped. And that was like another instance of like a pop star arriving fully formed. Like she was just everywhere. There wasn't like really like a ramp up period with her the way you feel like there is with a lot of artists where maybe you put out your first record and it does okay. And then your second record is the big one. It's like her first single was Vision of Love. And that was an enormous hit. And then she just kept having huge hit after huge hit. And I think it was natural at the time for people to look at Mariah Carey and feel like, oh, this is like the next Whitney Houston. You know, it, it felt, I think, immediately like that just because She had the same sort of vocal range that Whitney Houston had. And I think early on, especially, she was singing the same types of songs. Like it was, again, the girl next door type image. Like if you look at the video for Vision of Love, it's interesting comparing Mariah Carey then to like what she became. Because I think Mariah Carey, unlike Whitney Houston, was able to bring other elements into her music that weren't just sort of like middle of the road pop. Like I, she proved that she was like on top of like the latest in R&B, like as her like subsequent records came out. And it seemed like she had much more of an edge than Whitney Houston ever had. Um, and I, I think that's why in a way she ended up maybe having a longer career, at least like in, in terms of being a pop star. I feel like her peak lasted longer than Whitney Houston's did, but like, Early on, it seemed like she definitely was following that Whitney Houston template of like being the nice girl with the big voice who's singing these sort of romantic ballads where, you know, if you're a female listener, you want to be Mariah Carey. And if you're like a male listener, you want to be with her. It just seemed like this is someone designed to appeal to everybody. Exactly. I think uh, Mariah didn't want to be cast as a new Whitney Houston. A lot of that, I think, was uh, was Tommy Mottola's doing, was the head of her record label, Columbia, and her future husband for a while. And uh, 
And he had been sort of tasked with his job at Columbia of sort of filling the the pop diva slot that Barbra Streisand had been filling for years and years for the label. But she'd kind of stopped releasing records really consistently. She started mostly focusing on her movie career. So she wanted somebody to sort of compete with, you know, Whitney Houston, who was the, the reigning diva at that point. And uh, have you heard the story about how uh, how he and, and Mariah linked up? Uh, I'm sure it was totally above board and not at all sleazy <laughs> in the matter of many music industry stories. I mean, the official version, is, which is probably apocryphal, is like a modern Cinderella. I guess uh, she walked up to him at some like industry party and, hand, and pressed her mixtape into his hand. And then he's he's leaving the party and he's in his limo and he he puts the cassette in the in the stereo and he's listening to it and he's blown away. He orders the limo driver to turn the car, go back to the party immediately. I gotta find this woman. And you know, it's a total Cinderella story, and she's gone. He spends weeks trying to to track Mariah down, and eventually he does. And um and he uh really wants to basically make her a competition for for Whitney Houston. He hires some of the, uh, the the same people who worked on Whitney's promotions over at Arista Records. Uh, he taps uh, Narda Michael Walden, who produced Whitney's hits like How Will I Know and I Want to Dance with Somebody to oversee Visions of Love. And Mariah really resisted this. She wanted to work with uh, her collaborator, Ben Margolis, and, and oversee the production herself. And I think she actually did uh, produce one of the songs in her debut herself. But uh, it, it was mostly Tommy Mottola's doing to kind of like push her down that route, I think. Yeah, the Tommy Mottola angle I'm very curious about. And, you know, unfortunately, we're, we're recording this before Mariah Carey's book comes out. She wrote a book called The oh, Meaning of Mariah Carey. And I think, or I have a feeling that there's probably some good Tommy Mottola dish in there because, of, yeah. you know, they ended up getting married and divorced. And, uh, you know, again, like I, I assume that every head of a record label is a sleazebag. So I'm, I, I'm assuming <laughs> that there's there's some sleazy material. That's why I made that joke before. I just feel like, you know, Tommy Mottola probably had designs on Mariah Carey that went beyond just music, you know, from the get-go. It seems like there was something weird going on uh, with him and as he looked at her. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it seemed like there was a conscious effort in a very sort of typical music industry move to, like, just replicate a known formula, which was Whitney Houston, very successful. You know, now we have another singer who's great, and we'll just kind of fit her in that mold. And I think what allowed Mariah Carey, I think, to have the kind of career that she's had, because, again, I feel like her peak lasted longer than Whitney Houston. I think Whitney Houston's peak really was that late 80s peak going into, like, the Bodyguard soundtrack. So that's about, like, a seven-year run, and then it starts to dip, I think, a little bit after that. Whereas Mariah Carey has had, like, a decade-plus. I mean, she owned the 90s. She had, like, a little bit of a dip, and then she was able to come back strong, you know. Emancipation of Mimi. Yeah, exactly, in the aughts. And she's always kind of been relevant, like, for the last 30 years. Like, she'll bubble up and do something. And, of course, you know, All I Want for Christmas is You has made her immortal uh, in a way. Like, you know, that's a song that we'll be hearing, you know, long after we're all, you know, passed away. People will still be playing that song. But, yeah, I think with Mariah Carey, she was able to take control of her career creatively, I think, in a way that Whitney Houston wasn't. That because she was a songwriter and a producer, that once she was successful, she could kind of break out of that mold of like the prom queen pop star and become, I, I think, what she really wanted to be, which was more of like an R&B singer. And you could see that really start to come uh, into play, like with her next record, Emotions, where she was a big part of that record. I think she was like co-producing and co-arranging like every track on that record for the most part. And it makes me feel sad, I guess, comparing her to Whitney Houston, because I think there's so much about the Whitney Houston story 
where she was compelled to like put up this facade of perfection, you know, that she was like, you know, again, this like perfect pop star saying these like, you know, immaculate songs that everyone could like. And, uh, you know, there was nothing that was allowed to sort of rub up against that image. And you can see with her at some point, she can't keep that facade up anymore. I just wondered to what degree the pressure to be perfect you know, ended up doing real damage to her in the long run. Yeah, it almost reminded me of Michael Jackson in some ways, too, that kind of like Motown fame factory thing. I mean, Clive Davis certainly did put a lot of pressure on her, to, you know, with elocution lessons and all that kind of stuff. Like, I'm sure that that, was, that that was rough. And, you know, you kind of see a crack in the facade in an interview she gave in 1990, an uh, interview on European television, I think, where she's asked about Mariah Carey and, you know, what she thinks of her. And you see this sort of flash behind her eyes, this like snap decision of how do I answer this? How do I get, get you know, how real do I get here? And she said, what do, I, what do I think of her? Well, I don't think of her. <laughs> Which if you've never seen this clip, it is- Oh yeah, go on YouTube. It is like a, right a now. razor. Yeah, no, pause this and go watch it. It's I mean, it, it just- I cannot do justice to just sort of the razor sharp pause as just her eyes like kind of blankly scan the room for like just the perfect response. And the studio audience like starts hooting. It sounds like a Jerry Springer episode. Like she's just like, and, and she tries to backpedal a little bit. She says, well, musically, I think she's a good singer. A good singer. I mean, right. I know you're Whitney Houston, but you know, maybe concede that Mariah is a great singer because she yeah, is a great singer. See, like I, I appreciate this moment though, because again, the facade of perfection that she had to put up in the 80s, I think, was oppressive, ultimately. Mm. And like, and I, and I do think it was harmful for her. I mean, it's hard for anyone to keep up this uh, image that like you're, you know, that you're always happy, that you like everyone, that you're just this sort of universally adored pop star. It's like, she's a human being. And I, I understand her perspective in this situation. It's like, you're asking me about Mariah Carey, this woman who's just come out she had like one record at that point it's like i'm whitney houston you know like i am already acknowledged as one of the greatest singers of all time and now you're asking me about this person who like really doesn't have much of a legacy yet you know like from her perspective i can see like how that would be a little aggravating and i'm also you know I, i'm sure that on some level she was also feeling a little bit threatened too i mean I'm, I, yeah. I, I'm sure that was part of it but you know again this idea that like she wasn't allowed to have like a real human emotion that like anytime she would let her real self show, you know, people would get upset about it or be controversial. You know, that that's just sad to me. It's like, no, she should be allowed to uh, be annoyed by Mariah Carey. I think that's per perfectly acceptable on her part. Um, it's funny, too, because like on the Mariah Carey side, there was an incident around this time, too, like where she allegedly like snubbed Whitney Houston. Like, do you know this story? Oh, the uh, the BB Winnin story? Yeah, like, well, this was, like, at the American Music Awards, and I guess it's, like, early 91, and, you know, Whitney Houston's there, obviously, as, as is Mariah Carey, you know, again, they're two of the big pop stars at this moment, and this was, like, right around the time, I think, that Whitney Houston was going to be at the Super Bowl performing the national anthem, which is, like, the award show was the day after, so she is peak Whitney Houston. She has walked off that off the Super Bowl field as exactly. big as she's ever been. Yeah. And really like, okay, that game, that was, I think, the Giants and, and the Buffalo Bills, the Scott Norwood missing the field goal, which is an iconic play. But I feel like Whitney Houston won the Super Bowl. 
because <laughs> that's that national anthem. Like I remember that. Like that was released as a single. Like people thought that that was like the greatest version of the national anthem ever. Like it really had that reputation at the time. And I think even now, if people are going to talk about like the most memorable renditions of that song, they probably talk about that and like the Marvin Gaye uh, Star Spangled Banner from the the NBA All-Star Game in the early 80s. Like it's hard for me to think of like another anthem that comes even close to that. I think Whitney is definitely the like gold standard for like just belting that song out and killing it. So anyway, she is like just peak Whitney Houston. You can't fuck with Whitney Houston at this time. But yeah, she's with BB Winans, and like, doesn't BB say like, "Hey, Mariah Carey's over there. You should go say hi." Yeah, because Mariah had performed at, at the award show that night. So I was like, you know, maybe go say something nice to her, like you know, nice job or something. So like Queen Whitney Houston again, Queen. She is like she's like Queen of America essentially. Just just. Because she's sung the national anthem better than anyone ever. She still said, like, okay, I'll go say hi to Mariah Carey. And Mariah Carey, like, doesn't she, like, pretend not to hear her? Apparently. That's what BB said. He said that, that she just totally blew her off, like, pretended didn't hear her, didn't, didn't turn around, didn't acknowledge Whitney in any way. That's low, man. That's I'm, I'm on Whitney's side on this one. Because, again, Whitney Houston, huge star. Mariah Carey, very promising star at this point. But she's not yet Mariah Carey. She has not yet earned the right to, like, blow off Whitney blow Houston. Off Whitney. If this was, like, Mariah Carey in, like, 1997, 98, maybe it's a different story. But it's, like, she's still pretty young at this point. But, like, I guess years later, I, it was at a tribute, I guess, for Whitney Houston. Was it at the Grammy Awards? I think it was the BET Awards. The BET Awards. And Mariah Carey talked about this night as being the first night that she met Whitney Houston. No reference to blowing her off. She kind of made it sound like it was, like, a great meeting that they had, right? I mean, what- I love how after this went down, Whitney supposedly said, the jersey inside of me said, grab her hair. It's just <laughs> like, very Valley of the Dolls. Mariah didn't bring that up in the PET tribute. She didn't no. say, I blew her off and then she wanted to claw my hair out. I right. think it was very much like a, <laughs> we met and it was a wonderful experience. And, you know, which is like the revisionist history, I guess that gets written all the time in these, in these sorts of instances. But yeah, I feel like Mariah, don't blow her off. But uh, maybe she was mad about that interview, though. You know, maybe she saw, she heard about that, and she's like, oh, okay, we're enemies right now. Maybe she was intimidated by her, yeah. Who knows? I mean, yeah, it, the whole All About Eve thing between these two is is really interesting, too. Like, kind of the, the slightly older. It's funny to me that Whitney was, I think, six years older than, than Mariah. But to me, they it feels like a different generation. And I don't know if it was just the time that I was born in. By the time that I was aware of music, Whitney was mostly doing movies and yeah. wasn't really as active a recording artist. And, and meanwhile, Mariah, you know, owned the 90s, at least the late 90s. Uh, it, it's funny to me how different they feel just the, generation, generationally. Yeah, I mean, I think six years is a huge gap in pop music. And I think you're right. They were different generations. I think like when they're big debut albums came out is crucial because, you know, Whitney's debut comes out in 85. And her early career, I mean, she just seems like quintessentially 80s to me, even though she had hits in other decades. And of course, she's about to have the Bodyguard soundtrack in the timeline that we're in right now. But I still think of her first and foremost as 80s, whereas like Mariah Carey, you know, her debut comes out in 90. And it's like, oh, okay, this is the beginning of a new decade. This is going to be the Mariah Carey decade now. Uh, so yeah, I feel like that's true. But yeah, there was this, I think, window of time in the early 90s where they did seem like they were competing head to head because, you know, Mariah Carey's getting her career started. She puts out the first record in 90. The, her record Emotions comes out in 91. And then, of course, Whitney has the Bodyguard soundtrack 
in 92, which is like really like the peak of her career. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Bodyguard, not a great film. I think it received something like seven nominations at the Razzie Awards for Worst Picture and Worst Actress. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has given it 34%, but that's okay because Whitney and Clive Davis teamed up for the soundtrack. Uh, She was just going to sing six songs, and one of them was supposed to be a cover of the old Jimmy Ruffin song, What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, but uh, Fried Green Tomatoes had just used it. So Kevin Costner, of all people, suggests that she records an old Dolly Parton tune, I Will Always Love You. Kevin Costner, that's his idea. Get him Incredible. an a job. He should have been working for a record label. <laughs> it's amazing. I had no idea he was behind, you know, what was at one point the longest running number one in uh, in Billboard Hot 100 history. It was 14 weeks at number one, tied with uh, Boys to Men's I'll Make Love to You and the Macarena, three-way tie for the longest number one ever. And it's like not like necessarily a song that you would pick as 
like a monster hit song. I mean, no. it, I know that it was controversial a little bit with radio programmers because it's like an acapella performance for like the first, what, like 30 seconds or so, 30, yeah. 40, <laughs> like 30 to 45 seconds. It's just Whitney singing. So obviously that's not typical for a radio hit. Um, and it's also like pretty long, I think. Um, you know, it's not just like a prototypical, like three minute pop song, but yeah, it was just one of those songs. I, again, I think because, I mean, it's a wonderful song, of course, that Dolly Parton wrote, but like, it is such a great showcase for Whitney Houston's voice. Like the, the big note that she hits at the end, you know, like where she, you know, the, I will always love you part. It's like, I'm thinking about it right now and I'm getting chills just thinking about it. It's like such a powerful performance and, um, just an immortal love song. I mean, I mean, the Dolly Parton version is so great, and there's other great covers of that, but, like, Whitney Houston, like, owns that song now. And more than just the song, you've got the entire soundtrack, which, I mean, we could do an entire show just on the stats of this soundtrack. It is the best-selling soundtrack of all time, as well as the best-selling album by a female artist of all time, with, I think, 45 million copies worldwide. Fifth best-selling album in the world. I think it went 18 times platinum in the United States. First album of the SoundScan era to have sold more than a million units in a one-week period, which broke Guns N' Roses' record for User Illusion. Album of the year at the Grammys. I mean, it's just, this album is a big deal. I cannot emphasize that enough. Yeah, it's an enormous hit. Like, Whitney, again, she's she's already become Queen of America because of the national anthem. Now she's, like, the Queen of Pop Music because of the Bodyguard soundtrack. But you still have Mariah Carey coming up at her heels. And Mariah Carey is ramping up like you could say Whitney Houston is I think peaking at this point but Mariah's ramping up in a big time way and she ends up having a song that's an even bigger hit somehow than I Will Always Love You which is that song uh One Sweet Day her collaboration with Boys to Men it came out in 95 that was number one for 16 weeks which is amazing I feel like that was also like the Boys to Men element because apparently in the 90s people could not get enough of like <laughs> funeral paced boys to men songs like boys to men like love ballads that were like what like 50 beats per minute or something like just super <laughs> slow you know just like dirges almost from boys to men i don't get it i don't get it either i mean like there's a lot of mariah carey songs that i enjoy but like yeah one sweet day i just feel like is a pretty boring song it, it, i hate it, the song yeah, it, it, it's not that great, but it was number one for like four months, like one third of the year in 1995. You know, again, like people just loved people in 95. They hated rhythm. Uh, they hated <laughs> uh, fast paced songs. They just wanted like dirgy love ballads from Boys to Men and or Mariah Carey. And they delivered. And this song was enormous. And uh, yeah, it's I feel like in terms of just like the cultural impact, when we look back, I mean, I think I will always love you has transcended the era. I mean, people know that song now, I feel like, and they still love it. Does One Sweet Day have the same status? I don't know. I mean, maybe it does. I never understood it. I don't like the song. I just think there's no hook. I, I think it's just a dirge. I know it's been kind of like, you know, embraced as sort of a song for remembrance for like people who, who've died. I think it was inspired by the age-related death of David Cole from CNC Music Factory. Uh, so I, I appreciate that kind of like candle in the wind 97 element of it where it sort of like goes hand in hand with a tragedy. But the song itself, I just, I never, I, I just find it really forgettable in a way that I just think is unusual to, for songs that have reached that kind of chart success. Like if, if you said fantasy was number one for 16 weeks, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, that's got an amazing hook. It's just incredible pop. 
I just, uh, yeah, I never really understood it. But but her record stood until uh, 2017 when it was tied with Despacito for 16 weeks. And then Lil Nas X finally broke Mariah's record in uh, 2019 with Old Town Road. But for, for 20 years, this record stood. And they asked Whitney Houston about this song, too, I remember, like in the mid-90s. And like her, her response is pretty funny. Like, did you see this? Like, I think her quote is like, they asked her, like, oh, what do you think of this song? Because, again, like, she had this enormous hit with I Will Always Love You. And then Mariah Carey comes along a couple years later and has a song, One Sweet Day, that's on the top of the charts a couple of weeks longer. And Whitney Houston just says, maybe it's not what I think of it. It's what she thinks. It's more important. So again, like what, like what does that even mean? Like I, I've no I don't idea. know. It's very. That's like a like a fortune cookie message that you like look at, and you're like I don't, I don't understand this. Once we day booted, exhale, shoop shoop from the top spot. Whitney's song too. So I mean, there's an extra element of like you know getting run off the road. Not only is Whitney's record topped, but her own song gets kicked off of the number one spot. So there's the simmering tensions that are going on. They're, you know, they're battling on the charts for supremacy. But then there's a scheme cooked up, I guess in 98 or so, to get these two together for something known as the Prince of Egypt soundtrack. Now, I have to say that like this, by this time I was in college, so I was not following the latest Disney product. So I have no memories of the Prince of Egypt. I don't even remember this song at all like do you have any memories of of this was this important to you as a, as a young i guess you would have been like 10 years old i would have been 10 this would have been prime you know my my demo i have zero recollection of that <laughs> i remember seeing previews for it and thinking uh, you know i i guess like animated biblical story was kind of what they were going for for something that could be like you know trotted out every i i, I don't know it, it wasn't the lion holidays. king no it was not the lion king it was jeffrey katzenberg i think trying to Probably top the Lion King with like doing the sort of movie of biblical proportions. And I I never heard a single thing about it. I don't know. I've never seen it. I don't know anyone I know who's ever even spoken about it except for this duet. Exactly. And I I think the idea again was the public knows that these two are competing with each other. They may not like each other all that much, but hey, let's put them together on this song and market it to children. You know, so <laughs> because children love pop star feuds. And uh, they'll love it. I mean, right? Wasn't that the idea? The song, and again, I don't remember the song at all, but it was called When You Believe. Yeah, it was basically like, you know, meaningful in that very 90s way where you just kind of like, any song that talks about hope and open-mindedness is just like deemed progressive. (laughs) It was supposed to be this like message song, but the message was basically just believe, which I I don't know. Mariah was all on board. Apparently the first thing she said when she was told about this idea was, did Whitney say it was cool? So I guess, you know, at least she she was showing appropriate reverence to to Queen Whitney. But yeah, I, I never, the song did not live up to anybody's expectations, both commercially for their independent commercial, you know, successes and also with all the drama between the two. Apparently, they, they went on this basically this goodwill PR tour. They went on Oprah, and, and Whitney would say like, oh, yeah, we got along just like girlfriends, and, and it was great. Uh, but I will say, um, Whitney was asked about the first time that they, they, she met Mariah like for this project, and Whitney says, oh, yeah, well, Mariah, we couldn't really talk much because Mariah was having a little bit of vocal trouble that day, ah. just a little bit, which I, I just thought, woof, why, why do you bring that up on, on Oprah? Like, like, no, just say, yeah, it was great. Like, you don't, you don't have to. I, I always thought that was like kind of a dig. Oh, it's definitely a dig. 
Definitely. And I think, you know, there was this idea, like you said, they were going on this PR tour to promote the film and also to show that, hey, yeah, yeah, we're like girlfriends. We love each other. But there was also this sort of winking acknowledgement that maybe there was, you know, hostility under the surface. Like there was that appearance that they, they were on the, the 1998 Video Music Awards. And I do remember this, like where they had this bit where they were on stage together and they were like wearing the same dress. And it was like, oh, we're we're feuding because we're we're in the same dress. And it was like kind of, again, like playing up this idea that they don't really like each other. And uh, I, I think the idea with those types of things is always to say like, haha, we're joking about this. Like we actually do like each other because we're just kidding. When in fact, you know, if they did ever show up for real at a place with the same dress on, I think that there would be like, you know, knives drawn and uh, it wouldn't end well, I think. But yeah, the song itself, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a letdown because you think, again, like, these are two of the great pop singers ever, two powerhouse singers. They're really going to be on this song and it's going to be like a Clash of the Titans type situation. And it just ends up being this sort of cheese ball song on a, you know, second or third tier Disney film. Uh, the music critic David Brown, who we've talked a lot about in this show, he's written many great books. I think he wrote a line about this record where he said that this song has so much sap, maple trees will be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think that review says it all. Like, yeah. it really is just like a sappy, kind of crappy song. And um, in a way, too, like, I feel like with Mariah Carey, you know, I feel like she had established this uh, this thing on her own where she could be like this great kind of, R&B singer. I think especially like, you know, not so much on songs like One Sweet Day, but you think of a song like Daydream, for instance, which is like such a great track that has aged so well. The more sort of upbeat kind of R&B dance jams that she could do, I think she really shined on those songs. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it just still blows my mind that that kind of star power, it got to number 15, which, you know, no one expected at all. And I, I love how uh, when Mariah was assembling her uh, first greatest hits compilation called Number Ones, which was just a collection of her number ones, and you've had as many as, as Mariah Carey can. You can fill out a whole album. She included When You Believe, despite the fact that it didn't even crack the top ten, because she thought it was a miracle that she and Houston were collaborating together. I almost wonder if that record, which came out, I think, around the same time that When You Believe was released, if they just assumed it was going to go to number one. Oh, yeah. Why wouldn't you? And just stuck it on there anyway. Yeah. And they just like, and they're like, oh, shit. Well, wait, it's not. Oh, man. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, and Mariah Carey's not going to put a record called, you know, number 15s, you know. <laughs> There's not going to be a 15s record from Mariah Carey. So, yeah, it ended up on that record. And that was around the time, too, that like Mariah Carey started to stall a little bit. And what I think is fascinating about like this period, too, for her, and we're going to get into like, you know, some of the issues that she had here in a minute. But like, and this is like a tangent, I guess. But like, she had that mini feud with J-Lo around oh, this time. I love this. This is this is such a second tier rivalry. But and it, it, I, I don't think it warrants its own episode, but I love it so much. Uh, this is an incredible, you know, one of the most iconic interview answers, I think, in history. So it blows Mariah's, you know, what do you think of Whitney thing out of the water, I think. So she she's being interviewed. I don't even know who she's interviewing her. And, um, and the interviewer asks her about Beyonce and, and Mariah gives this like, really lengthy, gushy response about how great Beyonce is and what a talent and this and that, how nice a human being she is, goes on and on and on. And then the interviewer says, well, okay, what do you think of Jennifer Lopez? And Mariah just frozen smile. I don't know her. <laughs> nope. Nope. And then just this, this, like looking daggers with her eyes, but her smile is like huge. And the interviewer just goes, oh, okay. It's great. Incredible. 
Yeah, and like the idea again, I think she said this later that she's like, I really was trying to say something nice or say nothing at all. Like, so <laughs> again, the implication that doesn't being help, that, Mariah. That doesn't help. And it's an interesting contrast with this Whitney Houston thing because I think with her, with Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, there was, I think, some tension there. But I, I wonder, like, on Mariah Carey's side, if it was just sort of awkwardness in a way. Because she probably felt like, okay, Whitney Houston probably feels a little threatened by me. You know, I don't know how she feels about me. And, like, therefore, I'm not really sure how to act around her. But I still respect her, you know. And I don't necessarily dislike her. You know, because she didn't slag off Whitney Houston really ever that I'm aware of. You know, she never, like, she kind of blew her off a couple times. But she never, like, did something like this. Like, where, you know, she's, like, supposedly trying not to say anything mean. But, like, by not saying anything at all, you're actually saying everything you need to say. But... Yeah, it's funny because, like, that interview clip ends up being, I think, pretty iconic. I still see that memed every now and then on the internet. <laughs> and it kind of continues, like, for a while. Like, I, I know that there was this thing later on, like, where someone asked Jennifer Lopez about it. And she said, you know, oh, Mariah Carey's forgetful. We've met many times. <laughs> uh, and, 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 uh, and Mariah was like, wait, well, you know what? Apparently I'm forgetful I'm, I'm, I, because I don't remember the fact that uh, you know, I, I meet a lot of people, you know, hi, I'm so-and-so. Like, oh, yeah, that just happens to me all the time. But, you know. Yeah, I, I just happen to forget Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, like, there was that thing, like, uh, at the Billboard Music Awards in 2015 where uh, Mariah Carey was performing the song Infinity. Yeah. It didn't, like, J-Lo, like, pretend to, like, look at her phone during the performance. Like, there was some like, weird thing with that. Oh, yeah, they, like, cut away, and she's in the audience, like, scroll, like very obviously scrolling through Instagram in the middle of, of Mariah's performance. And then I think she was on, uh, I think she was on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen, and, and he asked about it. And so, no, I, I watched most of the performance. They just cut away at a bad moment. And then again, like, I think the year after that, in 2016, TMZ asked Mariah Carey again about J-Lo. And <laughs> Mariah said again, I still don't know her. <laughs> so apparently she's still for, she's very forgetful. Maybe she should get some post-it notes or something and uh, just write J-Lo's name on it so she can remember this. At any rate, this is a tangent. The, the movie Memento, but just about meeting Jennifer Lopez. Exactly. So this is a tangent. Anyway, I think it's an interesting contrast with what the Whitney Houston thing is. Again, because I feel like when Mariah Carey really doesn't like a diva, she makes it pretty clear. You know, she's yeah. going to the media and... Uh, I mean, again, I think saying I don't know her is like the most devastating thing that you could say about somebody. You know, <laughs> it's more devastating than if she had gone into like some detailed critique about her singing or something. But just like the four word, I don't know her. And the fact that that's going to be memed forever. It's a pretty, it's amazing shade on Mariah Carey's part. One of the finest things. I'd love to know what happened. Yeah, I would too. I want to know that. But anyway, let's get back to Whitney and Mariah. Because as we get into the aughts, I feel like they both go through a pretty difficult time in their careers and, and in their personal lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, Whitney's career was totally sidelined by drug use and exacerbated by her marriage to, to Bobby Brown. And her reputation as a sort of, you know, the squeaky clean prom queen of soul thing had given way to a new reputation, which was less good, the sort of erratic and unreliable uh, addict. And she would arrive hours late to interviews and photo shoots and would bail on concerts and talk show appearances. And this was around the same time of her, like, kind of legendary in a bad way interview with Diane Sawyer where she denied her drug use by saying, you know, first of all, let's get one thing straight. Crack is cheap. I make too much money to ever smoke crack. Let's get that straight, okay? We don't do crack. Crack is whack. 
That's a um, that's a that's a unique defense of of crack. Saying like I'm too I'm too rich to do crack. Yes, that's pretty that's pretty tough. And she was supposed to sing at Clive Davis's induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She she didn't show. Uh, Burt Bacharach, who was her longtime friend, uh, I think uh, fired her from performing at the Oscars in in 2000. Uh, I guess during rehearsals, not only was her voice really shaky, but she would just start singing the totally different songs than they were supposed to be doing. Uh, so it, it was a, it was a really rough time for her. Uh, but she could still command these huge fees from record labels. And in um, in August 2001, she signed. Uh, I think one of the biggest deals in music history at that point with uh, Arista BMG for a hundred million dollars to deliver six new albums uh, over the next, you know, I think it was 10 years, uh, which sadly, I don't think she ever delivered all six, but the first, it was 2002's Just Whitney. And it was a disappointment on pretty much every level, commercial, critical. Yeah. And you know, man, the Whitney Houston story is so sad to me. I mean, there's, and it really just gets sadder as as we go beyond this point, you know, leading up to her to her untimely death. But, you know, I think in comparison to that, like the Mariah Carey story is more inspiring just because she was able to pull out of a tailspin that she went into around this uh, around the same time, which I think is is pretty well documented. You know, like in the late 90s, she was, uh, as we said before, she was married to Tommy Mottola and that marriage ended up going on the rocks. Her career at that time was also starting to stall a little bit. Her 1999 record, Rainbow, wasn't as big of a hit as some of her previous albums, which, you know, again, by Mariah Carey standards, she had very high commercial standards at that time. I think for like a lot of people, Rainbow would have been a pretty successful record, but it really fed into the perception that maybe she was fading a little bit. And in her personal life, you know, along with the failing marriage, she has to deal with her father dying of cancer, just a lot to deal with at this time. And it ends up taking a toll on her. She has this emotional and mental breakdown. There's that famous clip of her on TRL where she just seems incoherent. I mean, it's pretty sad. You know, I, I'm sure that's on YouTube. I don't really feel like watching that. It's kind of depressing, I think to watch. Um, and I feel like she really reaches her nadir with the film glitter. Then the soundtrack to that movie glitter was supposed to come out on September 11th, 2001, which is a terrible day. Obviously, to launch an album, although like a lot of classic records like came out on that day, like the Dylan record, Love and Theft, came out that day. I oh, think that's right. Jay Z's The Blueprint came out, so you know those records did okay, but Glitter did not. And uh, yeah, the film itself, I think, is just this like disaster essentially that uh, is ended up, I think, having a good reputation just because everything in it is so wrong that it ends up just being this like camp masterpiece, you know, like people, uh, like a Valley of the Dolls or like a showgirls type movie. So I think like revisionist history has been kind to glitter in retrospect, but in the moment it just seemed like, Oh, this is the end of Mariah Carey's career. She's never going to be able to recover from this. She does her best to kind of dig herself out of it. She buys herself out of her multi-million dollar contract with Virgin records that she was with at that time. And uh, was reportedly considering a contract with Arista, which was uh, Whitney Houston's label. And Houston apparently went ballistic when she heard that she might be sharing a label with her, you know, one-time arch rival. Uh, uh, Mariah didn't end up going that direction, but I think she signed with Island. But just there was a lot of press at the time that was, you know, Whitney let her feelings known. And in 2009, uh, Mariah Carey was struggling to finish up her album, Memoirs of an Imperfect Angel. And it kept Great getting album delayed. title, by the way. 
Yeah. Oh, she's got my, my favorite uh, Mariah Carey album title is Mar Me, Mariah, the Elusive Chanteuse. <laughs> exactly. I think. I forget where the ellipses go in there, but it, it's an incredible. It's like somebody just like asked her and she kind of made it up on the spot. What do you want to call your album? Me, Mariah. The elusive Chanteuse. Yeah, I just, kinda, I love that. One of the many things you could say about Mariah Carey is that she knows how to give herself nicknames. You have Mimi, <laughs> you have the elusive Chanteuse, you have the imperfect angel. I mean, it's like, oh man, like you should just give yourself nicknames all day long. Like it's all gold. I don't know where the lambs nickname for her fans came from. I wonder if that was like just what you would call like, you know, my little lambs, my fans. I've always wondered about that. Yeah, that's a that, that's another like, again, great, Coinage by Mariah Carey. But she was finishing this album, Memoirs of an Imperfect Angel, and it kept getting delayed in like really short intervals, like, you know, a week or two at a time. And around the same time, uh, Whitney Houston moved up the release of her album, I Look to You, one day from September 1st to August 31st. And the press just had a field day. They said, they, you know, Whitney did it symbolically to let the world know that she was super prepared and on time, you know, even early Unlike her, you know, fellow diva who was was tardy, and at this point she'd postponed appearances on Today, and I think she had an episode of VH1 Storytellers that got delayed. Uh, which I, I don't know. I just I love that. I choose to believe that that was like an incredible act of shade. Yeah. So this is all leading up, I guess, to the sad ending of this rivalry, which would be Whitney Houston's death in uh, February of 2012. Again, just. A very sad story. There's like a number of documentaries about Whitney Houston that I would recommend checking out um, if you don't know much about her story. It really is like, I think, again, an instance, I think, of a, of a pop star being in this gilded cage <laughs> in a lot of ways where she just was not allowed, I think, for the longest time to be herself. And then it seems like that caused her to overcorrect and go down this terrible path like with Bobby Brown and like all this these you know bad decisions that ended up really taking her life off a of track and and tragically ending it at too young of an age, and uh, there's a story that like I guess Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston had uh, had dinner in 2011 I think not long before uh, Whitney Houston died I'm not sure exactly what the timeline there was but I think it was like a year before she died yeah it was a year before she died and Mariah Carey actually ended up going to Whitney Houston's funeral and. Uh, she she was on Good Morning America, I think, a few days after that. And her grief, I think, it seems sincere. Like, it seems like she really was kind of wrecked by this happening. I mean, there's a, there's a quote from that appearance where she says, I'm almost incapable of talking about this still. I think we all are. It's very heavy emotionally. I don't think people could ever really understand our relationship. There was always this supposed rivalry in the beginning. And then we did the, and then we did the duet, which I guess is the Prince of Egypt song, and became friends. I saw her toward the end. I loved her. We all loved her, and we were all inspired by her. And you know, I'll take that at face value. I think, I think definitely from like Mariah Carey's perspective. Again, you know, I think she probably sensed that Whitney Houston was a little threatened by her. She could sense some hostility from her, and it maybe made her feel awkward at times, and therefore that might have caused her to like blow her off at certain situations. But it seemed like she did. I think down. I think in her heart, like did like Whitney Houston. I think she probably revered her and. And understood that, like, Whitney Houston helped pave the way for her own career. Yeah, I mean, that relationship, it, it, it's tough to lose an inspiration. It's tough to lose a friend. But when it, there are all those sort of unresolved feelings like that, too, which I, I, I tend to believe that there probably were, it, it, that makes it so much worse when there's so much sort of left unsaid between them, I would assume, too. 
Yeah, that was sad. And, and she led the tribute at the Whitney Houston um, uh, tribute at the 2010, or sorry, 2012 BET Awards. Although she didn't sing, which I always thought was interesting, but she got up there and, and talked about her memories of, of her time with, uh, with Whitney. But incredibly sad story. And she talked about, too, about how she felt like the industry pit her against Whitney Houston. And that she felt like it was, it was sort of like larger forces coming into play. And we've talked about this in other episodes, like in our uh, Cardi B and Nicki Minaj episode, that sometimes there's this idea, I think, where, oh, especially if you're a woman, that like, oh, you're the woman in this lane. There can only be one woman here. And if another woman comes along, that means that you have to fight for supremacy for this spot. And, you know, we haven't really talked about that a lot in this episode, but I mean, there probably was some of that as well. I mean, not so much, I think, coming from either Mariah or Whitney so much, maybe, but like from people like Tommy Mottola, you know, who was consciously molding Mariah Carey somewhat against her own will to be like the next Whitney Houston. And, you know, and maybe that just kind of got them off on the wrong foot and caused tension that didn't need to exist. I think Whitney said something like that when they were doing the uh, the Oprah show together for the Prince of Egypt soundtrack. She said, you know, th- this is just sexism. Like, you've got Dan Rather and Ted Koppel. You don't see, like, the press pitting them against each other like that. You know, it- it's just there There can be more than one. It's not, it's not Braveheart. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. 
Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we've now reached the part of the episode where we give the pro side for each side of the rivalry. Let's talk about Whitney Houston first. I have to say that, like, in terms of just, you know, the vocal quality, I'm probably more on the Whitney Houston side. I just love her voice. And I think that the story of her career often is her elevating material that, like, wasn't great. But, like, because of her voice, she just lifted it up so much. And she could redeem songs again that... We're sort of middle of the road and not terribly exciting. You know, it's it, it's sad to me that, like, Whitney Houston, I don't know if she ever got much of an opportunity to really show off what she could do, which is kind of a weird thing to say about someone who's as successful as she is. But, you know, if she could have been with the right producer that could have given her the songs that were worthy of her talent, I just wonder what she could have done. I mean, if you look at I Will Always Love You as an example, like, that is an undeniably great song. You know, written by a world-class songwriter, Dolly Parton. And she made it her own. I mean, she knocked it out of the park. And I just wonder, like, what what could she have done with, like, more songs of that caliber? Um, It's just, like, one of the many sort of sad things about her untimely death. You know, like, she should still be here uh, making music. And it's it's tragic that she's not. Yeah, I always thought her gospel training helped her sort of transmit emotion a little better than Mariah could through, through her music. And I know Mariah, I think, has a slightly bigger range. She's got the whistle tones and all that. But you're right. Whitney has this, like, kind of dusky, heavier tone. Uh, five octaves, which is still nuts. Um, and I think that there was some thoughts about how uh, her last couple albums, which didn't really sell as well, were kind of her, like, late-era Sinatra records, where she could, you know, because her voice wasn't the same after years of drug use, but it still had that ability to convey that incredible emotion and um, I also think Whitney was a better live performer than Mariah. And that's not just because that Mariah's been, you know, the, all the lip syncing controversies in recent years. I think that Whitney, I think Mariah was more of a technician. I think Whitney liked to sort of divert from the recorded version and really almost like a jazz singer and just and kind of get more uh, interesting with it live. She could improvise, whereas I think Mariah kind of stayed as close to the recorded version as possible. Um, I mean, you know, they're both incredible uh, Whitney, I did not realize, the most awarded female musician in history and second overall uh, behind Michael Jackson, 600 awards in her lifetime with seven Grammy <laughs> Awards. Six Holy smokes. That, and Mariah clocks in at 11th with, uh, I think, 281 awards and five Grammys. Um, oh, and she is- Just 281 right. awards, man. <laughs> just just ignored Mariah Carey. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if we, if we go over to the pro-Mariah Carey side- I think it's fair to say that she's had the better overall career. I mean, here we are 30 years later after her first hit, Vision of Love. And I feel like, you know, Mariah Carey is still someone that she could put out a record next week and people would have expectations that it could be good. You know, I think there's still an idea, especially among pop fans, that she is like a legacy artist that's worth paying attention to. And, you know, I mentioned this earlier, we didn't spend much time talking about it, but like, all I want for Christmas is you is like a modern standard. And it is like the most popular Christmas song, like for many, many years. And I think it will continue to have that status uh, for years to come. So like if her reputation was just like writing and recording that song, 
like she'd be set for life. But um, you know, I think another thing about Mariah Carey too that is inspiring is that you know she did have that dark period where uh, it did seem like maybe her career was over, and she was able to pull out of it and do really well. And it is. Um, a nice contrast with the tragedy of the Whitney Houston story, you know, who you know, Whitney Houston went into a tailspin that she wasn't able to pull out of, sadly. But Mariah Carey is, I guess, the counterexample showing that you can go through difficult times, but uh, you can also find a way out of it. So as a survivor, uh, I think you also have to give Mariah Carey her props. Oh, absolutely. I, she is, I think, my, my favorite of the two. I just think she has a much more adaptable voice suited to Many different styles. I think her transition over to hip hop with songs like Heartbreaker and Honey and all the ODB remixes were successful because she has this really, you know, sultry, breathy, silky quality to her voice. I think if, if Whitney came from the church, Mariah came from the opera. Her mother was a was an opera singer and, and sort of trained her as a little girl. And I think her voice was a lot more elastic. Uh, and as I said earlier, I mean, she, she has a, a greater range. And uh, I mean, and, and just her songwriting, like you said, I think she has writing credits on 17 of her 18 number ones. Uh, and the only one that she doesn't is a cover of the Michael Jackson, Jackson 5 song, I'll Be There. Um, God, All I Want for Christmas is You. I mean, it got to number one this year. I mean, or in, in the Christmas 2019. That is insane, the staying power of that song. I mean, the number of insane stats for Mariah is just off the charts. I mean, she's tied with Taylor Swift for the third best-selling female singer of all time, has the most number ones of any singer ever with 19. A uh, best-selling single, All I Want for Christmas is You, has sold 16 million copies. First female to debut at number one on the Hot 100. Only person to have three songs debut at number one. And the only person to have a streak of five number one singles twice in a row. I just, it's unreal. Not bad. Not bad, Not Mariah. bad, Mariah. So if we look at these two together, I think it's fair to say that even now, that if you are like an aspiring diva yourself, that these are the two go-to standards. You know, like you want to be Whitney or Mariah or you want to be both of them. Um, And I really feel like, you know, for all the talk that we've had in this episode about them being rivals, them being pitted against each other, it seems like at this moment in history that if you like one, you probably like the other. You know, they're both pop royalty at this point. So the rivalry, I think, has been put to bed. They're both great. And I think everyone loves both of them. Yeah, you know, Mariah got her name after the song, They Call the Wind Mariah. And I I always thought that was appropriate because her voice was just like the air. It was just this breathy sound that just, and Whitney had this fiery gospel intensity. I think it's just, it's like fire and air. It's elemental. It's, you know, it's a matter of preference. Like you said, opinion. I don't think someone who likes one hates the other. I think they're both supremely talented and worthy of their status as, virtuosos and pop powerhouses. Well, Jordan, this episode is, has me feeling emotions. <laughs> and Steven, I will always and, love you. <laughs> well, on that note, I think it's time for us to sign off. So we will be back next week with more feuds and beefs and long-serving resentments here on Rivals. Take care. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstack. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good the host of the podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. 
This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.